Hello. Uh, today on the Loopcast, I'm in conversation with Arash Azizi, the author of The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. This is an excellent book. I think it's for a lot of our audience who focus on Iran. I think this book is is pretty good because when I read through it, I was kind of surprised because a lot of how we understand Iranian history, at least in English, is not necessarily told through Iran's rural poor or its soldiers, or in this case, the head of the IRGC. It's always told through clerical eyes. And uh, Arash kind of has introduced this different perspective to not only the revolution, but also Iran's foreign policy and the tensions within Iran's foreign policy between, you know, this idea of exporting the revolution and having a theologically driven foreign policy, the pragmatic demands of foreign policy, and then also this IRGC that is kind of sits between the severely ideological and then also the practical and pragmatic. And it's just a very... It's a great read, and I, I really suggest it for anybody who is focusing on Iran today. So with that being said, please welcome my guest, Arash Azizi. How's it going? Thank you very much, Sina. How are you? Thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, I hope I deserve them. I'm very glad to be with you. Of course. Um, I want to start off with a very simple question, which is, why Soleimani? Why in why focus on his biography and sort of the telling of Iran's history? There's so many huge personalities, right? There's mm-hmm. Khomeini, Khamenei, there's, um, you know, Javad Zavarif and all these sort of yeah. huge personalities. Why focus on Qasem Soleimani? Uh, Soleimani has always been fascinating to me because um, he was able to really move seamlessly across national borders and build a sort of transnational army. That's actually a pretty rare thing in history, right? One of the basic conditions of national states is that we all in some capacity um, kind of declare a willingness to die for our nation, right? It's part of, I mean, if you're from Iran, obviously you have to serve in the national army for two years, but everywhere in the world, even the countries that don't have conscription, you know, when there are wars, you go and join up your national army, right? When, when you're exempt, your exemption is only for the peacetime. So, but it's, it's a much less common thing for people to sign up in an army headed by people of another nation um, to go and die in, in some other third country. And yet that's exactly what thousands of men did for Qasem Soleimani um, and on, under his command. So he was interesting to me because I've been, I'm long interested in the question of Iran and the world, if I put it very broadly, like how does Iran connect to the world? And more narrowly, Iran and the Arab world. And there's almost a, um, you know, there's, for me, there's almost a kind of a sad story here. And is that I've always lamented that why is it that the the artists, the people that I like myself on sort of the progressive left, we have very few links in the region. Um, you know, an Iranian, uh, you know, some, an Iranian who reads books is much more likely to read books in French, Germany, Spain, Latin America, Chile, you know, which are like thousands of kilometers away, than say Iraq, a country with which we have many links and it's right next door. Whereas for the regime in Iran, um, and for all these groups that I, you know, from the outset say I sort of view negatively, 
um, they have they have many links um, and they have very impressive links. In fact, that in these years, Iran and Iraq have become really integrated through these links. So Soleimani for me is interesting as a case of internationalism, as someone who embodied really an internationalism that um, I discuss in the book in sort of a historical overview um, and that really came to um, serious heights in the last uh, few years. Um, and I, you know, I had, I, I was writing the book, by the way, before he got killed. Um, him getting killed just um, expedited the process, basically, because the publisher told me, you know, it's now or never, you know, you need to, <laughs> I mean, to have a book out on him. Um, and, but also, you know, increase the interest in him, I guess, um, which hasn't been bad for the book. Um, but yes, I think it is this journey of, and looking for links between Iran and the world and this question of internationalism that that made Soleimani a good candidate through whom I could I could tell a story about its history the last 40 years. That's interesting to me um, because you, you touched on this idea of transnationalism and in the study of Iran, that that idea of transnationalism is always casted within Shiism with it's it's always casted within a sort of religious idea whether it's the revolutionary Shiism of Khomeini or this idea that Iran has always played a connection within broader um, Shia politics but um, as a historian when you were telling um, Soleimani's story did that ever did that change your view of Iran's history and Iran's connection within the broader world did it sort of did you have to go revisit some ideas and say well that's that's also like a valid thesis or idea or did it not really change anything for you that's an excellent question and and let me please get at it from a couple of perspectives um first of all it is true that shiism is exceptionally transnational um, in a way that it's uh, you know dare i say rare in the modern world in fact um, I mean, the examples are a lot. In my book, for example, I discuss Musa al-Sadr, um, known as the sort of vanished imam. Uh, and he, here's basically an Iranian cleric who later in life, he's like in his 40s or 50s, when he goes to Lebanon um, and reinvents himself in Lebanon as a religious political leader. And he, to this day, is one of the leader of the Lebanese Shia. Um, he becomes a very important political personality on a world scale. He meets the Pope. You know, he meets all sorts of characters and in Lebanon, he becomes a very important character. Now, you know, this is a pretty rare thing, right? For someone to be from a country, grow up in that country, you know, until a very late age, as I said, and then reinvent himself um, um, in another country and just so easily. And Shiism and the kind of links that it has, especially between the Shia communities of mostly Iran, Iraq and Lebanon, but also Afghanistan and India and, and Pakistan and other parts of the world is unique. And I discuss a few other transplantations like this. Maybe Chambran, again, is an Iranian who goes and reinvents himself and, you know, also marries a Lebanese person and becomes really an important part of Lebanon's um, sort of uh, political culture. And we have all sorts of, uh, you know, people in Iraq and Iran. Who are, so so Shiism is, does have kind of a unique transnational possibility, if you will. Um, especially on this sort of clerical level. And the clerics are really sort of a transnational corpus, like that if you, today Ayatollah Sistani 
um, is a national leader in Iraq, right? He's the most revered religious figure in the country. Um, Sistan, as we know, is in Iran, so he has Iranian origins. Um, so this puzzles the observers sometimes. They're like, well, is he sort of an Iraqi nationalist? Uh, you know, can he be? Is, is this Iranian in origin? And I would say that in the world of Shia clerics, of course, national, uh, nationality um, is something that um, is not that they simply rejected, um, but it certainly is a conundrum, if you will. Um, it's not actually rejected because after all, um, all these people had to work in a um, national framework, which they don't reject, including Khomeini, Sistani and others, and that, you know, and they, they have to contend with in different ways. So that's just a general sort of point about Shiism. Um, but, and, and the other point I wanna say really relates um, to the second part of your question about, you know, what, what's the new thing that I found. Um, you know, the thing is, the Shia transnational connections are just a potential, right? They're a potential. And of course, all world religions are transnational. Right? I did say that, um, you know, Shiism is kind of unique in this way because it has, uh, you know, in this day and age, it has a sort of high transnational capabilities, if you will. But all, you know, the Catholic Church is obviously a transnational organization. Um, you know, the, the Pope appoints um, cardinals everywhere, which is why. You know, in the, in the United States, of course, when you first had a, a Catholic president, John F. Kennedy, uh, the fear-mongering right would say that, oh, well, is he going to be controlled by the Pope? Um, and speaking to some, some anxiety between transnational religious institutions and, and national institutions that are supposed to be, um, you know, the primary depository of one's loyalty. So, um, so my point is that this religious uh, transnational create a potential, but they're not the last word on the subject. And so you cannot understand, where am I going with this is, you cannot understand um, the civil wars in the region. You cannot understand how Qiqas and Soleimani recruit so many people by just the fact that they were Shia. In fact, if it was so easy, then why do you, you know, why do you need a capable commander like Soleimani um, if, if the Shias would just so naturally go join up? And if they naturally would join up, why is it that they, in the Iran-Iraq war, um, after all, the Iraqi Shia, by and large, fought for their country, um, Iraq. They did not join the Shia majority country that is Iran. So um, basically, the, the points that I'm trying to uh, give, um, and it's not a very straightforward point always, but it's that the transnational connections are a potential, are, are one factor um, in a situation, and they're not the last word. And that for the most people, for most actors, is not a basic choice between sort of religious identity and nationality, but a, but a, but a more layered question that, and that depends on the context in each specific case. And I have struggled to understand the evolution of internationalism in Islamic Republic of, you know, from the moment of the revolution of 79, I mean, from before the revolution actually, and the moment of the revolution, and to today, what is it, how is it that this internationalism changes? And I think if this, if this book um, might offer something that might be um, you know, of interest, especially to the scholars uh, of the field, I would humbly suggest that this is it, that uh, I give clues via this biography as to the evolution of, the inter of this internationalism. And here is where, you know, being a historian is, um, is, is useful or, or potentially fascinating. Um, 
because it's, it's all in the specifics. You might have, I, I think this is a fascinating point, right? They all have general views of, of something. Um, and sometimes you really spend hours in the library and study the detail and you're basically say, you know, that general suspicion or view is confirmed. You're like, okay, so, th so that's what it is. Um, but often that's not the case. And that's the story of Iranian internationalism for me that I've grappled with um, and that, that Iran really is a conundrum because they're not easy answers to this question. Um, you know, how Shia sectarianism matters or doesn't matter in one year. Um, and, and, you know, what actors use sectarianism and to what purpose. And um, I would say that they are, they're not really straightforward answers. And I'm not someone who actually loves to give non-straightforward answers. You know, it's, I think, when you can, it is. After all, our job is to study these things and make them more um, understandable, really, not the other way around, as sometimes it seems to be the trend. Um, but that, in, you know, genuinely, there is no easy answer to the question of, um, you know, is Iran using Shia sectarianism or not? Um, is it, you know, is it a Shia sectarian force or not? Um, and uh, how to balance it with um, uh, different priorities and political goals that not just Iranian state, but all these different actors that are mobilized by Soleimani in, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen, in other countries. Um, you know, there no, there's no easy way to explain that. And I would say that I was surprised many times and, uh, you know, uh, really thought hard and long before putting things on paper about, um, about each and every one of them and tried to make conclusions that I can defend and that they're not boring and, you know, somewhat sweeping when, when possible, but also that they're, um, they're not just sort of empty, um, you know, claims and that they're back. Awesome. So, um, what really caught me off guard about this book was Soleimani's early life because uh, his his later life is is you know incredibly fleshed out. Like you, when he you know stops being a commander and starts being a myth or a meme, he, you know there's a lot of that part of his life, the towards the end of his life. But his early life just caught me, just like kind of blew my mind. Like he is this young man in his twenties in Kerman in this kind of poor area of Iran and, you know, describe his life, you know, before and during the revolution. Is he, is he this ideological guy who's going out and protesting? Is he just like, you know, I'm just going to work and not really care about this revolution. What, you know, who is he at, at, you know, in 1979, 1980 during the, this period of the revolution? Um, well, as you know, he was, whatever he was, he certainly wasn't a sort of young ideological person as I, as I try to show in the book. So Qasem Soleimani was born in Qanat Mok, a little village um, in south of Iran. It's a village that it's more than 200 kilometers away, even from the center of the province, Kirman. And it's a village like of which, you know, exists many in the world in which the origins of the village goes back to tribes that were settled, forcibly settled, right? So national state, uh, in this case, under Reza Shah, the founder of the Pahlavi monarchy, um, forced them to settle. Um, there are many such villages in the world. I remember being in one in Jordan, you know, those who visit Petra, usually that's what has happened to many of the tribes, um, uh, you know, in Jordan, near Petra, because you know, they're sort of settled in, in villages and their life now revolves around the tourism industry uh, and the ancient ruins of Petra. 
Um, so uh, this is this is also Anatomov is also one such place. Um, so Soleimani is from there, and you know he's from a very modest background. And you know in the book I explain wouldn't go into it all now here, but you know I explain how uh, basically the uh, let's just say um, incomplete success or failure according to how you see it of of the land reform by the Shah uh, by the by the Shah over in the monarch of Iran. Uh, explains how um, his family is indebted, uh, and you know, young people like Soleimani need to go and work jobs in construction and sort of that sort of jobs to um, to pay for the family. But more important than that, um, like any other young person from a small place, like a really small place of I think has three hundred families or something, um, you know, Soleimani wants to go and see the world. And he does, so he goes to Kerman, the, pro the provincial center, which, which is a still a kind of a small town in Iran by Iranian standards, right? It's not, uh, it's my maternal hometown. So I gotta be careful sort of what I say about it. But, uh, you know, it's not really one of the top five of Iran, let's say even. Um, uh, but still it's a much bigger world than was, you know, what Soleimani was used to. And there in Kerman, he, uh, works at a hotel, he works at as a civil servant in the water organization. Um, and he also, you know, he, he takes a lot of members of his family, his brother, his cousins, you know, they're sort of all living these rented room, uh, rented rooms and, uh, you know, living in Kerman and experience this big city with all the changes, with people who are now reading all sorts of sort of books, a lot of left-wing books, people who are involved in the revolutionary movement. And yeah, he does go to a mosque a couple of times including when revolutionary a revolutionary cleric which is some kamyab visits and gives the sermon so the money is there but by and large he's not uh, really he's not uh, religious he's certainly not really political he's a young man in his early 20s who is interested in the world and um who's interested in broadening his horizons broadly speaking right um but the, the most important uh, thing that happens to him in these years is that he joins the karate club and the boxing club. And you know, he's, he's very much a gym guy. He spends a lot of his time in gym and he's very physically impressive. Um, and karate and boxing are, are especially sort of important in this regard because they give, you, um, they give you sort of a discipline and they give you, um, you know, they give you a bigger world, right? If you come from a small place. And uh, after the revolution, Soleimani first um, signs up to join the IRGC, this militia that had been formed to defend the gains of the Iranian revolution and defeat its sort of internal external enemies. Um, and he got rejected because he just doesn't look like a you know, good, nice Islamist boy. He, you know, he has a short sleeve shirt and he has funny hair. And we know all of this because the guy who rejected him, of course, would... <laughs> you know, would be taunted by him for years in sort of a, a comical way that, or you know, remember when you said I wasn't good enough to join the IRGC? Um, so that's really the story, but at some point they get him, he's, he's able to join a sort of a reserve force. And that's of course when the war between Iran and Iraq starts in 1980. And Soleimani signs up to go to the war and fight. Like again, um, what any young man would do um, if they want to broaden the horizons. And, and that certainly is what happens. He goes to the war and this is where he can prove sort of his, um, he can prove he's, he's a good soldier. And he joined the RGCs uh, in, in about 1980 and he joined the war effort there. And to the very last day in his life, unlike many of his comrades, he never took the khakis off and he, he remains a IRGC soldier. 
to the very end of his life from his early 20s. So really this, what, what I think the story of early years that I focused perhaps a little, um, you know, I, I spent quite a bit on it. And as you know, because I just wanted to give a background of, um, of how is it that, uh, uh, you know, a Iranian like myself of, of my parents' generation um, would, would choose the path that he did. And I think um, there's a story of people from marginal backgrounds joining up a revolution after the revolution had been already made. And this is important because they're not those who make the revolution by and large. The revolution is made from, by the people from the center, mostly. But after the revolution, they're mobilized by this new republic, new regime. Um, and that gives them a new life and a new meaning in the battlefields of a long eight years war with Iraq and, and everything that comes after. Um, I think that's an important uh, perspective on understanding the, the regime in Iran that is, that is sometimes not, uh, not thought about. So he, he comes out of Iraq and the Iraq war ends in 1988, 1989, please correct me if I'm wrong. And 88. 88. And, and so this is the, you know, from out of the revolution comes the 90s. And this is kind of before 9-11 and before the war in Iraq, uh, the 2003 war in Iraq, <laughs> have to be more specific. Um, what does he do in the 90s? What is, what is his position? What is his sort of focus in that sort of period from the end of the Iraq war to the beginning of the 2003 war? Mm-hmm. So, um, the war, of course, goes on for eight long years because Iran, uh, being a revolutionary regime, tries to do what all revolutionary regimes have done. But if the Napoleonic army was actually able to conquer much of Europe, and if the Red Army was, uh, you know, after the Russian Revolution, able to conquer much of at least the Russian Empire and, uh, you know, tried getting to uh, Warsaw and was defeated in the Vistula, uh, the Iranian, uh, the Islamic Republic also you know, thought that they could, um, to, quote a, uh, to, to quote an expression that became very popular at the time, they could make Karbala a bridge to Jerusalem. So the idea was that we'll, of course, overthrow Saddam Hussein um, in Iraq and we'll go on to conquer and, you know, sort of spread the message of our revolution around the world. That doesn't quite work out. Not only they can't get to Karbala, they can, if you talk to a lot of old Iranian fighters, the, the frustration that they could never even conquer Basra, a Shia majority city port in the south of Iraq, uh, whose, whose lights you can see. I mean, and, and I've been there, you know, in, on the Iranian side, you can see the lights of Basra from, from Iranian territory, but they're not even able to conquer that after eight years of a, a bloody war, after having kicked out uh, Saddam's forces much earlier in the war. Um, so the end of the war um, is, is with a compromise, um, they have to give up, basically, Ayatollah Khomeini, who, until the very end, had said that he, you know, he would not accept a peace. He does it. He says doing so, it's like drinking a chalice of poison, um, which is the name of a chapter of the book that I, that I wrote about this. Um, and he, Khomeini also dies uh, shortly after drinking this chalice of poison and accepting the uh, UN resolution that, that ends the war. Um, so people like Soleimani and them, it starts, it starts becoming kind of a frustrated group of people who thought they had been betrayed by diplomats and politicians. Incidentally, Javad Zarif uh, was a young diplomat at the Iran's permanent representation in, uh, in the United Nations in New York at the time, and center of a group called New York Boys. And he becomes a 
you know, he, a lot of people don't like him because of this. Um, and they, even then, the Iranian sort of conservatives attack him. So he, you know, he's been used to this uh, all his life, basically. Um, so yeah, Soleimani is also one of those frustrated soldiers who are not happy with this, with this peace, basically, with this, with the end of the war without getting the results that they had wanted. Um, but unlike many of them, um, he uh, remains in the military. A lot of them go to do different things. Um, after the end of the war and the death of Khomeini and also the fall of the Berlin Wall, really Iran is also caught up in that ideological shift, if, if you will. It becomes a much more capitalist country. And the debate over is Islamic Republic socialist or capitalist or you know, what it is basically is resolved in favor of private property and capitalism um, in, 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 the, in the late 80s. Um, and uh, so a lot of these ex-soldiers get into business or, or they join the construction efforts under President Abrahsanjani. Um, but Soleimani keeps on his uniform and he, he remains in the force. Now, what he does is interesting. He um, becomes basically in charge of battling drug gangs, which roamed free across much of Iran, specifically the eastern borderlands, i.e. where Iran meets Afghanistan and Pakistan, an area that is, um, you know, uh, to a large part on the Iranian side and, and on the other sides. Um, let's say ungoverned by the national states or where national states have difficulty governing it. Here is where there are uh, local guerrillas, there are drug gangs, there, there are all sorts of forces. And Soleimani becomes in charge of this. And by all accounts, he does a pretty good job of uh, fighting the drug gangs, of opening roads, of making the area more um, accessible. And that's, so that's his big post-war assignment. Um, you know, in which he excels. And also because of this, he becomes part of IRGC's and Iran's Afghanistan hands, let's say, i.e. people in the foreign policy establishment and military establishment of Iran who are in charge of dealing with Afghanistan, um, who, as you know, was seeing important changes there. The Soviet invasion fails in the, in the 80s. Um, it, it is followed by rise of an Islamic government in Afghanistan, that Iran supports, but then they, this government is overthrown by Taliban, um, and you know the force that um, I imagine most of your audience know well. And um, Soleimani is an important. When when Kabul is falling um, to Taliban, Soleimani is not far actually, and he's he gives hope to the leadership of the uh, Afghan government, and he helps takes them somewhere else and. He helps organize the resistance from Tajikistan. So as part of his, um, his job in fighting the, the, the uh, drug lords um, in, in Eastern Iran, he also becomes a liaison of Iran with Afghanistan, which leads to the last appointment of his life and the most important one. And in 1998, he's appointed the head of the Hots Force. Um, the Hots Force uh, had been founded in late 80s, and it's basically tasked with organizing and giving some order to the previously haphazard external operations of the IRGC, i.e. Um, establishing links, uh, sorry, organizing the links with Hezbollah, the militia that exists in Lebanon, and other forces um, that had ties with the IRGC over IRGC allies. And this is the assignment in which Soleimani you know, rises to become one of the world's best known military generals. And for the last day of his life, he was the commander of the Hots Force to which he had been appointed um, in early uh, 1998. 
And since you mentioned you mentioned up to the Iraq War, so of course between 1998 and 2003 we have the uh, 9/11 and uh, the uh, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. It is well known that Iran collaborated with the United States in uh, fighting Taliban, um, and Soleimani was basically the head of this collaboration with the United States. To quote an Iranian diplomat that I mentioned in the book, Iran and the United States have an unwritten pact that they're allies in the fight against Taliban. It's interesting in light of you know what we've heard recently about Iran and Al Qaeda ties. I go into the book uh, a couple of times in which Soleimani rejects a offer from Al Qaeda leadership to join up with them and uh, and fight against uh, you know to to fight against the Americans. Um, you know it's more nuanced. There are you know the Iran Al Qaeda relationship. I'm sure you have others who also speak on it, and I've you know, I've mentioned in the book. Um, different instances. It does happen at some places in Bosnia, for example, in the in the in, in the early nineties. But at any rate, the, the in two thousand and one, um, this is an important part of Soleimani is in charge of um, negotiating with some of the Americans and helping them, um, being basically the ground force um, that uh, that Americans can rely on as they as they attack Taliban. Uh, and uh, I think that's also a very important part of Soleimani's life. Um, the 2003 invasion of Iraq is followed, of course, by George W. Bush. It, like before George W. Bush invades Iraq, he declares Iran, along with Iraq, to be part of an axis of evil, which is what sort of puts a damper or puts an end to the Iran-American collaboration against Taliban. And the war against Iraq um, comes to really define Soleimani's life and the subsequent history of the Islamic Republic. It is, uh, at the beginning of the US invasion, Iran is very afraid of what's gonna happen to it and it's, it's prepared to even work more with Americans. But then, uh, you know, in order to basically, you know, from a position of weakness, frankly. Um, but when that doesn't materialize, it starts with a slow burn building of its forces in Iraq and in the region. And I, you know, I could say that without the US invasion uh, of Iraq, uh, it's hard to see how Iran could have rose to the sort of power that it, that it builds in the region in the in the two decades that uh, that followed the invasion. So before we we hop into post two thousand three, I just when I was reading your book, it, it was very like two sets of details very stood out in my mind. One was Soleimani's participation in Iraq in uh, the the Iran-Iraq war, and then his his participation in sort of these operations on the eastern border of Iran, dealing with Afghanistan and Pakistan and um, the drug lords, and it, it just struck me that that it almost it almost seemed like his his engagement in sort of countering these drug lords was much more formative in his approach to problem solving going forward than the Iran-Iraq war. So that's that. I, I love the way you put that. Yeah. So um, may I? Or? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, I, I love the way that you put that. Uh, I hadn't heard anyone putting it like that, but uh, uh, there's a lot of truth to what you say. In fact, when you look at his account, I mean, Iran-Iraq war is obviously important. It's very Iran forms the sort of ideology of um, you know, a ideology of a struggle that it kind of lacks before. I mean, 
is an important part of um, this story is that Iranian Islamists really don't, are, always have a chip on their shoulder next to say Marxists who are, you know, Marxists know their books, they know their theory, they have their international allies, they're much more serious than Islamists who don't really, um, they're very new to this game. And, uh, you know, uh, they, 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 they don't always sort of, they don't, they don't always have really established brand of ideology and theory and all that. And in the Iran-Iraq war, they build at least an operational version of that, right? Of, of you know, of an ethos, if you will. So Iran-Iraq war is obviously important, but, at, you know, Soleimani doesn't seem to have been that, that I mean, he's impressive enough in, in the war. He's one of the mid-level commanders. He basically builds a division out of kids from Kerman province and its two adjacent provinces in southeastern Iran. So, but, you know, he doesn't seem have to have been to have been that that operationally uh, impressive, or you know, um, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, but you know, as he is later in life. So what really, so what is really, um, you know, where does it build up um, the experience that helps him in later later in life to deal with this irregular warfare, right? Being able to, because something to be to fight in a classical war, part of a national army, it's something entirely else to to manage different guerrillas, to you know take Afghan militias, train them in Iran, take them to Syria to fight together with the Lebanese against uh, you know a transnational force like ISIS, right? Um, this really requires a different sort of set of skills, and I think you're right that it is in the war. In the drug wars and in the Eastern Borderlands war, that he he uh, takes a lot of the he learns a lot of those skills because there he has to you know I have instances of him where he effectively he becomes a unwittingly becomes a diplomat because he has to negotiate with an Afghan village on on this on a sort of Afghan border village about them surrendering some of the people they have he has to deal with the uh, with the Baluchistan area which is a transnational area on, on, in Iran and Pakistan. There are two big provinces called Baluchistan and the Baluchi people there have a very proud history and they have links. So he has to learn how to operate in that, um, in that sort of atmosphere. And, and you know, the Afghan civil war, which is split, sort of spilling into Iran in some ways, I explain how some of the, some of the um, outlaws and drug uh, lands, drug lords operating in Iran were linked to Globedin Hekmatyar, a warlord in Afghanistan. So, and in fact, it is this experience that leads to him becoming involved in foreign affairs, right? First, because he, he becomes on Afghanistan hands, as I said, um, in sort of an unofficial uh, fashion. And second, when in 1998, Ayatollah Khamenei, Supreme Leader of Iran, appoints him the head of the host force. So it, you're very much correct to say, while, he, while the experience of the Iran-Iraq war was obviously important in, in several ways, it is really those experiences of, let's just call it irregular in Eastern borders that, um, that leads to his appointment to the head of the Quds Force, and that proves um, essential to his 22 years at, uh, at the, as the uh, head of this force. So the to leap forward back in time, back to 2003. So the Iraq war kicks off, the United States invades Iraq, things shortly begin to fall apart. Where is 
Soleimani in all this. You you made a point, and I, I kind of want you to elaborate on it. Is that that they were kind of in a position of you know working with the United States until the famous or infamous axis of evil speech, but. Um, where is Soleimani? Where is what is he? He what is he doing in two thousand three in in regards to the invasion of Iraq? So the invasion of Iraq presents Iran with an opportunity because Saddam Hussein is gone, um, and you know Iran Iraq is now a more open field. So Soleimani, um, from the early on, he um, let me let me start with. So he sends people in, right? He, he sends people, organizes people in, and it soon becomes clear that the Iranian embassy in the new Iraq is going to be not led by the foreign ministry, but by the Quds Force. This remains a fact to this day. To this day, Javad Zarif does not control what the Iranian embassy in Iraq does, uh, nor does President Rouhani, uh, the head of the Quds Force, uh, does. That was certainly the case under Rasim Soleimani. Um, it's been a year since he's gone. I imagine that it's pretty much the same under his successor, Ismail Khani. Um, so he sends people in, and he sends people in different um, guises. One of the most interesting ones is that he sends people in um, to take care of the shrines. There are Shia shrines um, in Iraq, and Iran, as the major Shia country in the world, of course, has some claim into, you know, we're there to restore the tiles and build these buildings and take care of them. Of course, there's an organization that sounds very benign that is in charge of basically taking care of this Shia shrine. It sounds like a sort of a, you know, sort of a restoration architecture of the organization, right? But it becomes actually a vast military operation um, in which um, IOGC uses it as a cover to really um, increase its influence in Iraq, all over Iraq. There are Shia shrines in, in Baghdad, in Samara, in Karbala, um, and uh, smaller ones in, in some other places. And um, so uh, Soleimani builds up a, a presence of Iran in Iraq in those years, and it helps the resistance. Basically, it helps the groups that were fighting the American invasion. Uh, and that's, you know, these are some of the Sunni forces. Um, they're different forces. They're sort of Saddamist forces, let's call them. The, I think Nakhchivandi army is the name that, that, that comes to um, that comes to form. Uh, so Soleimani doesn't necessarily help this particular group, but he definitely he kills a lot of Americans. To put it to put it clearly, this is important because, of course, this is a thing that is missed sometimes. Because uh, well, if you say a version of history in which well, Soleimani was helping Americans um, here and also uh, against ISIS later on in Iraq. Uh, you know, so why is it that so many in the American sort of military establishment hate him? Well, they don't forget this early part that he makes their life hell. He is the one who builds those IEDs and, and different sort of bombs that, um, that makes the life of American soldiers hell in, in a lot of places and, of course, increases Iran's influence to the degree that it soon becomes very clear what has been the fact in Iraqi history since the invasion till 2020, in the early 2020, um, where Soleimani is killed. In these years, it becomes very clear that Iran um, effectively, together with the United States, is one who decides who's going to be the prime minister of Iraq. This has been the fact. Every, there are elections, but really, who gets to form a government in Iraq would not happen without the consent of Tehran and Washington. Um, I believe Mustafa Kazemi, the current prime minister of Iraq, is the first one who 
break with this trend and very much his political career is about asserting sovereignty of Iraq against both Iran and, uh, and the United States in a sense. Um, with Iran being the more powerful uh, sort of a state in Iraq now, so it's sort of more relevant. So the short answer is Soleimani is able to use the opening caused by the fall of Saddam to very to expand Iranian influence and build very serious Iranian uh, uh, very serious Iranian military influence. Um, and this is no easy task. And I in the book I explain some of the pitfalls and some of the problems and some of the ways in which he does it because the Iraqi Shia political groups um, can't agree with him themselves and also you know they've throughout the long years of Saddam Hussein they've spent their life either studying in some religious seminary in Iran or you know owning a pizza shop in Dearborn Michigan so they're not exactly fit for um for work of politics uh, where, um, you know in a, in, a, in a new country and Soleimani is able to and put some heads together, um, put some groups together, and really expand Iran's uh, influence. And uh, by no way, this is a um, this is an easy task or, or something that uh, that we can just assume happened. This, so really, this is the chronicle. Uh, sorry, this is the crown, if you will, the jewel crown in his empire. It's like it's Iraq. It's it's really where he shows his uh, his most um, talent, if you will. But of course, it's also where, toward the end of his life, he had to face the rising movement of Iraqi people, who, of course, didn't want their fate to be decided by a military general from another country. Um, and had he had Soleimani not been killed um, by Trump, I think he would have had to seen his most prized um, uh, force in Iraq also really unravel, uh, not by Americans, but by the wrath of the Iraqi people, including Iraqi Shia, who were not happy with the heavy-handed way in which he had extend, expanded Iran's influence in their country. That's, that's an interesting point because it seems like the strategy that Soleimani uses in Iraq was so explicitly hinged on sectarianism and even extreme sectarianism in the sense that you, you pointed out that you know, their first move in Iraq was to protect the shrines. So obviously they're they're protecting the shrines in an environment where you also have uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq and you know with their explicitly sort of sectarian strategy. But going back to Soleimani, it, it seems like you know his sort of center stone, his sort of capstone in his Iraq strategy was explicit sectarianism. You know, it wasn't about Iraqi nationalism; it's about Shia or Iraqi Shia or Shias in Iraq that, you know, believe in, you know, Iran as a benefactor, supporter, protector, whatever. But is that accurate? Or is there more sort of, you know, a more secular sort of understanding or approach to, you know, Iraq from, you know, Soleimani's perspective? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, you know, early on, um, you know, early on, I was trying to explain something about sectarianism and that sort of what I was getting at. So I'm very glad you, you brought it up in this regard. So what happens, uh, let me just, I don't believe the Iranian state has sectarianism sort of built into it because it has bigger ambitions than being a defender of the Shia only, really. It wants to be the leader of the Islamic world. Hell, it wants to be the leader of the world's oppressed from the beginning, right? So it has bigger ambitions. So why is it that it comes to 
employ what you correctly call sort of extreme sectarianism. And Soleimani certainly has become a sectarian figure. Um, it, well, it's because they discover very soon um, that this um, sectarianism in an environment that was already sectarianized, um, there's, a, there's a great book called Sectarianization and even the title, uh, you know, even the title really, um, uh, ex sort of explains that it's it's not that sectarian identities are just there forever, but that we have sectarianization. So in an environment where sectarianization is happening, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, they, they Iranians understand very quickly that this is a great way to have people sign up in your armies and get killed. After all, what did they have before? They had sort of a stale anti-Zionism, revolutionary Islamism, that really is not that convincing. Right, it, it, it's about this. So how do you how do you sign up people? It's a political question. How do you sign up people to join up and fight for you, politically and militarily? Um, so it's not, as I said, it's not what I call the stale uh, Islamism that had sort of gone out of energy by by early two thousands, but Shia identity. It, it's it can be a great one, especially because of course a lot of Shia are under attack, or by Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the, the Jordanian who heads the Al-Qaeda organization in Iraq, um, really it becomes a, uh, you know, starts adopting methods that makes uh, the leadership like Osama bin Laden and them recoil. And that's how violent he is. And really, so that's how sectarianization on both sides. So Iran pushes it and the Sunni sides um, uh, push it like Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And of course, later on, we have ISIS. And there are different events. In 2005, we have the killing of Rafiq Hariri, a Sunni a prime minister of Lebanon, and the very overthrow of Saddam and his execution. He was seen as a leader in the Sunni world, um, or, or what is sort of, not only he was a leader in the Sunni world, but his death really forms the Sunni world. You know, there's sort of a symbiotic relationship here. Um, uh, so in this atmosphere, they learn that sectarianism is very good and they, it's very good for them. They, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a pretty easy way to organize people compared to um, sort of political mambo jumbo of, of the previous years and they use it. So in short, this is a story of a very cynical utilization of, um, of sectarianism to, um, to advance their thought in the same way that I think, uh, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure Donald Trump himself, but certainly many um, right-wing Republicans or right-wing political figures around the world don't necessarily breathe in the racism or white nationalism or the stuff that, or anti-Semitism that they use. They very cynically use it as a way to manipulate people, as a way to rile up their audiences, uh, you know? Um, sometimes they believe it, sometimes they use it cynically. Um, and I, I believe in the case of uh, Iran, is a lot of that, is a lot of that cynical use um, of sectarianism. And uh, it's a very unfortunate fact that, um, that, that really um, creates sectarian enmity and hatred and tension in the region it has uh, to this day. But it wasn't, it wasn't preordained for this to happen. And uh, it certainly, in the last 20 years has happened. This is, you know, I need to emphasize this because it's very sad, frankly, it's very sad that published authors, serious people, uh, you know, uh, and all sorts of people would uh, 
you know, talk about how, oh, well, of course, you can explain the problem in the Middle East because the Shia and Sunni have been fighting each other for a thousand years. Um, frankly, it's embarrassing, it's stupid, uh, you know, to, to say something like that when you have very serious people, you know, working on uh, sectarianism in, you know, in all sorts of ways, um, uh, you know, and, and write books about it. And, you know, one wonders what do all these people do at these dip government funded departments if you're just going to sort of repeat cliches that, you know, probably someone's uncle would say. So, uh, you know, I think basically that's when, when we look at how sectarian transition happens um, and how um, sectarian entities are sometimes prioritized and sometimes not and used by politicians sometimes and sometimes not, um, you know, you, you avoid falling into the cliches like the ones I mentioned. So I want to maybe... Um touch on something that you, you, you touched on, but I also, I want you to elaborate a bit on it, which is the tension between the foreign ministry, the Quds force, and then MOIS. So that's Iran's intelligence services, because um, there's just like, what really stood out for me in the book is that you kind of highlight this tension between Javad Zarif, the, you know, he's very stereotypically, he's very educated, went to, I think, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, one of them. Uh, um, neither, but oh, I think he, okay. <laughs> he didn't go to Ivy League. He was, I think it was the University of Southern California. You know what, I, I actually think he went, he went to Denver, I think, actually. If I'm not mistaken, he went to the University of Denver. I'm not sure, but is that where Condoleezza Rice went? Anyways. I, um, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I but, think he went to Denver. So. Um. But, you know, you, you highlight the tension between what I consider Jawad Zarif and the foreign ministry and traditional diplomacy with the diplomacy, if that's an accurate way to describe it, of the Quds Force, of Soleimani sort of going out and building relationships with, you know, Hassan Nasrallah or the Iraqi government, or even sort of the most infamous example is that David Petraeus had, you know, Qasem Soleimani, it was rumored that he had him on on speed dial um but sort of highlight that for us because that, that was a, just an absolutely fascinating part of the book was these this tension between traditional diplomacy and then god's force diplomacy um so first of all i did check uh you're asking and yeah he had so he went to san francisco state university and the university of denver he got his ma and phd from university of denver so you know to all those in denver uh, you know java zarif is your I don't know. So he, he lived in Denver for a while. So maybe someone can write a book about the Denver roots of, you know, Iranian foreign policy. But um, back to your question. Um, so this, this, is a, this is a really, and you at, asked earlier, you know, what is it that made me think twice or, or you know, re, revisited my assumptions. I mean, this is a very complex relationship that is hard to understand. Soleimani and Zarif, right? In fact, that could have been a book sort of about the tensions between Soleimani and Zarif or how to see the Iranian history of the last 20 years as, as between these two. Two men who are both, they have something in common. They're good, loyal uh, soldiers of Ayatollah Khamenei. That's very clear. Khamenei personally trusts them. They, have, they sort of go back to him personally. And uh, so how could they be on opposing sides? In fact, Zarif recently gave an interview in which and they sort of ask him about this TV series in Iran, which is funded by the IRGC and paints him as a traitor, as a, you know, sort of a traitor who sits down with Americans, which is how they, they um, portrayed him. And as I said, even back to the 1988 end of the Iraq war, they portrayed him and other diplomats like that. 
um, and Zarif sort of had to speak about this conundrum that as part of foreign ministry, he has to defend all institutions of the country, including the IRGC abroad, whereas the IRGC itself attacks him so virulently. So what do we have really here? Um, so here's, here's what I think. Um, I think, number one, Iran is both a regime and a revolution, right? It's both a, a state, a normal national state. Sorry, I meant to say both a country and a revolution. I say this to, uh, to sort of as a retort to Henry Kissinger, which sort of had famously said in the last few years that Iran has to choose between being a country and a revolution. It has never ceased to be either since the revolution of 1979. I, Iran both is a a national state with capabilities and sort of usual things that national states do, including um, diplomacy and diplomatic relations with, with different countries in the world, um, and a revolutionary regime that has revolutionary institutions led by the supreme leader, um, who is who supreme leader is sort of a made up English title, by the way. His real title is leader of the revolution um, in Iran. And um, uh, <coughs> So there are these revolutionary institutions um, and there is the national state and the Supreme Leader controls much of the national state and he controls all of the revolutionary institutions. So they sometimes do come into conflict. They sometimes do come into conflict, especially because um, the limited caste of rulers in the Islamic Republic, the governing caste, uh, has had many splits between itself. Um, on the extreme left, if you will, there are people who are liberal democrats who want Iran to be a liberal democratic country, um, and then on the extreme right are Khamenei and them, and there are many things in between, like someone like President Rouhani who wants Iran to be sort of a technocratic state. So, as a result, you have these conflicts. Um, now, so so where you know where does this end us? Uh, it ends us with saying that the the IRGC. Um, and foreign ministry in the last 20 years have been both under the indirect control of Ayatollah Khamenei, anyways. I mean, indirect in, in terms of the foreign ministry, more direct in terms of the IRGC. And he uses them in different ways. Ayatollah Khamenei has proven to be a very interesting sort of um, character in a sense that he doesn't so easily um, back aside. He's a balancer. He's a a manipulator of different factions of the regime. He knows that if he, if he only backed one side, um, sort of unreservedly, it would endanger the durability of the regime. Now, this, he has become more and more partisan and one-sided as time has gone on, which is why I believe, and many believe the regime has paid the price and is more brittle um, and more in crisis now. Um, but at the same time, Khomeini has never, and disavowed Jabhat Zarif and, and the Rouhani government. In fact, to the opposite, he's always supported them. So you have this conundrum, right? You have the situation in which the Iranian conservatives, dominant in the, in the Iranian parliament, foam at their mouth attacking Zarif and attacking the, the um, Iran deal um, and the negotiations that led to it, right? The Iran deal of 2015. Um, but Really, they consider themselves, these people who really hate the Iran deal and hate the negotiations and hate Zarif, they consider themselves soldiers of Ayatollah Khamenei, who sort of loyal to Ayatollah Khamenei, who also supports Zarif both privately and publicly. So what's the conundrum? The conundrum is that, um, as I said, Khamenei is above them all and, you know, 
uh, and they pursue different and sometimes contrasting goals. Uh, them, them being the foreign ministry under the President Rouhani um, and the IRGC who acts as something like a big opposition party. Um, I didn't mention the Ministry of Intelligence. The Ministry of Intelligence um, is a, uh, also nominally under President Rouhani and has its own long, um, it has its own sort of long history um, and institutional memory, if you will. Its job is mostly to fight domestic uh, uh, subversion, basically. Um, although when the Ghost Force got formed in the late 80s, there was an agreement between the Ghost Force and the Minister of Intelligence that Ghost Force would take care of um, Iran's alliance with Hezbollah and its allied groups. Minister of Intelligence would focus on killing dissidents abroad. So the only thing Minister of Intelligence would do abroad is to kill dissidents, um, sometimes by using Hezbollah operatives. Um, and I recently wrote a short article in the New York Times about some, some of the history of this work and how why it was stopped in the in the late nineties. Um, so I won't so bore you with that here. But um, I hope I was able to explain uh, the dichotomies between these um, the three forces and different parts of the Iranian regime. And this is a, a you know it's a really delicate question because there are those out there who want to um, let me just say that the two false dichotomies are those out there who say, well, there's no such a thing as an Iranian moderate. You know, they're, all, they're all the same. Well, they really are not all the same. Um, you know, they are not the same. They follow many different converging paths. Um, and by they, I mean different factions in the, in the Islamic Republic. Um, but then there's also another side that portrays, you know, that, that pretends like, um, uh, you know, President Rouhani is a Democrat or is sort of, you know, uh, you know, he really is like a sort of progressive person or something like that. Um, and that's also not true. Um, so I think you need to, you, what we need, uh, uh, you know, what we need to do is understand different factions of the Iranian regime and their respective powers um, at, at, at different times. That's really the, the only way to do it. You don't have a simple, um, you know, you don't have a simple answer of, oh, you know, they're all the same. Um, there's no moderate between them, whatever moderate means, um, or the other way around that, you know, to portray uh, that, you know, Iran has no, no problem with the United States and really um, it's just a small number of hardliners who do. So, so I hope books like this and my general work and that of many others is able to educate people about the, uh, about the real existing differences um, in the, in, within the Islamic Republic faction. So, as you mentioned before, beginning in 2020, Qasem Soleimani is droned out of existence. He's killed. Um, and so my first question in, in relation to his death is what happened, what, what happened to the IRGC? Because at the same time that Soleimani is very charismatic, he kind of, a lot of authority runs through him. The IRGC is a bureaucracy in the way that I understand it. It's still an institution with its own paperwork, its own progression, whatever. But, you know, what has happened and what should we expect to happen with, you know, Soleimani being, you know, droned out of existence and, and all this? The RGC is a much bigger uh, force, obviously, than one man. It controls something like half of the Iranian economy. Um, I recently wrote an article for Iran Wire in which I explained, for example, how the IRGC and its 
rival institutions maintain control over Iran's startup, you know, tech startup industry and some of the methods. So it's a, it's a massive organization, massive military and economic behemoth really that now is the main force in Iran easily. Um, and many expect them to win, um, to for the candidate, the winning candidate for the next Iranian presidential elections in June, although that, you know, that could change. Um, and, but the question of Soleimani's demise and what it means, well, let's not, before we get to RGC as a whole, let's focus on the, um, and the Hotz Force, which, which is the external operations wing of the RGC, which Soleimani headed. Uh, look, yes, Hotz Force is also a bureaucracy, but that's exactly the point. Soleimani is not a person that the bureaucracy can replicate, right? He's not just, uh, he is simply irreplaceable. And I think uh, a year after his assassination, I can say with some confidence that this is the conclusion that the RGC leadership has gone to, has come to itself. They basically decided, look, we can't replace Soleimani. Um, so his successor, Esmail Ghani, let's just have more modest operations of him. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Soleimani was someone who was able to seamlessly move across borders in this energetic, impressive way. He was in every battlefield, um, something that he had you know, done throughout his life in the Iran-Iraq war and also the drug wars. He was the guy who would parachute into um, a, a Iraqi Shia Turkmen town when he was besieged by ISIS. And, uh, you know, he would parachute in there and he would uh, organize the... Uh, organize the people in the city to fight against ISIS. He was one who was not afraid to go to different parts of the Syrian uh, civil war. They say he would have breakfast in Tehran, lunch in Baghdad, and dinner in Beirut, and, you know, maybe an aperitif in, in Damascus. Not sure he had aperitifs, but, uh, you know, you get the point. So uh, this is not someone that we can easily replace, right? And Ismail Ghani is not that. He barely speaks Arabic. Um, he's, he's learned, I guess, in the last year. Um, a bit more, but he didn't before. He didn't release the garlic before. He's certainly not charismatic, nothing like Soleimani's charisma. He doesn't have the personal relations that Soleimani had built over decades with, um, with the leadership of Shia forces in, in Iraq and Lebanon and other places. So he has proved his shoes are basically impossible to fill. And I think the RGC leadership has decided that Ani is going to be a more modest, more bureaucratic figure, something of a coordinator between the different Shia forces um, allied with Iran. And that's what they basically decided that, that Soleimani can't be there. As for the RGC as a whole, um, you know, that Soleimani had, I revealed in the book for the first time, that Soleimani had planned to run presidential elections in six months. And him running would have been uh, a sort of very different scenario, really. Um, it's fascinating to think what would have happened had Soleimani remained alive and had he been able to run in the elections. It would have been a very different event than anyone alive in the IRGC. Since Soleimani was very unique, um, he was seen as much more of a, I mean, I don't believe that more, most Iranians like him, unlike what some analysts say. Um, I don't have sort of magic poll, uh, polling to know, uh, but I do believe that he definitely was seen as a national figure by more you know, compared to any other figure in the IRGC. So his demise is, has important political consequences that as well. And God knows, you know, had he remained and had he run in the elections, as he certainly um, was thinking about, um, God knows what would be the ramifications. If I was Khamenei, I would be very afraid of that, of course, right? 
you have a military charismatic guy who is also the president. Um, I don't think the Supreme Leader would have had the same power had that happened, even though Soleimani had, was a devoted and beloved sort of soldier of Khamenei who by all indications really loved him personally and served him uh, all his life. That's interesting because you you point out that Ishmael Ghani, the, the guy who's coming in to replace Soleimani, is more of a, a coordinator. So in, in that sense, the last 10 years of God's force activity, it, do we... Do we characterize that as output that's related to sort of Soleimani as a commander and sort of doing his best and being the most aggressive within whatever bounds is set by Khamenei? Or is it simply that whoever comes next will have the same level of involvement and aggression? Like, I guess what I'm asking is... It's all about Soleimani. Sorry, Guan, yeah. I guess what I'm asking is... Guan, Guan, sorry how much is his charisma and his own leadership versus the underlying bureaucracy and institution of the God's force that is leading the God's force to be sort of so heavily involved in everything in, in sort of the, you know, Iraq, Lebanon and Yemen, etc. So obviously, you know, you, if you want to do the job of Soleimani, you need to have the support of national resources of a country. And not only Soleimani had the support of a big state like Iran, he was able to use his celebrity effectively and his different um, links to do crazy things that won't be possible in normal times. Um, what, for example, he was able to get, you know, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Paris Fatah, who is the head of the Mostazafan Foundation. This is a foundation that has billions of dollars of investments in Iran. It runs the hotel in Dubai, it runs mobile companies, it runs hotel chains all over Iran. Um, so this foundation that has access to all this money, the head Paris Fatah had a personal relationship with Soleimani. And Fatah uh, gave an interview after Soleimani's demise and spoke of how Soleimani once came to him and just got millions of dollars from him to go pay his Afghan fighters that he didn't have the money for, apparently. So this is just one example of the kind of resources that Soleimani could use. Um, the Hamas leadership recently spoke about how in one trip to Iran, they, they meet Ahmadinejad, who was president at the time, but really the most important meeting is with Soleimani, who sends them home with millions of dollars again. Um, and he was even happy to give them more, but they didn't have enough suitcases, basically, enough people, basically, to be able to carry the suitcases. So that's, this sort of story shows what kind of a, um, you know, what kind of a figure Soleimani was. Um, uh, so obviously the resources matter, um, the institutions matter, the, he was built in the IRGC from, he had spent, since he was 23, 24 years old, he had built up in this institution and had been built up in this institution. So obviously they matter, but it was a, as I said, it is solely, this is, God's force was Soleimani's project and he really did it in a way that no one else could, frankly. Um, it, this, there's, this is no job description, right? It's something to say, after all, we have the God's force before Soleimani, we have about 10 years of God's force before Soleimani, and we have nothing like this, right? We have a couple of really bad failures, like in Bosnia, which I talk about in the book briefly. Um, Iran tries to intervene in the Bosnian civil war. This is where Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and Iran kind of work together a little bit in the, in the context of um, the Bosnian civil war, the Yugoslav civil war. 
and it doesn't go very well. And it's a very <laughs> difficult thing to do, frankly. Not only it doesn't go very well, Iran has nothing to sh show for that end. Did, did any, does a pro-Iranian political party exist in Bosnia? No, it doesn't. Um, you know, despite millions of dollars that, that they spent. So what I'm trying to say is that, uh, yes, Soleimani personally, um, his charisma, his military uh, acumen, the personal links that he built with Hassan Nasrullah, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, Imad Mourniyeh, uh, one of the slain sort of leaders of Hezbollah, um, the relationship that he was able to build with Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, which convinces Putin that he, if he intervenes in the Syrian civil war, he has someone like Soleimani on the ground. These are very critical. Um, and uh, this is not just some, this is not a task that anyone who wasn't in that position could have filled. Soleimani very much built up the, uh, the story of Iran in the last 20 years uh, is the story of Soleimani doing um, something um, very beyond uh, what a basic sort of portfolio of a task would have, uh, would have had him do. And uh, this is the, there's a relationship between military leadership and a political leadership because Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, of course, it set the tones that the policies um, Soleimani followed them. But Ayatollah Khamenei also knew that he has someone like Soleimani he can trust, that he, when you know you have that kind of tools, um, you decide to do more things, uh, you know, compared to if you didn't have this. Um, so that's, you know, that, that relationship is, is important. So we've, we've come to sort of the end of the conversation. And as per tradition, you know, the, the last question is always, you know, leave us the audience, the interviewer, whomever, you know, with something to think about. I mean, we've, we've only, like in our conversation, we've only touched on maybe, maybe half the book, maybe less than half the book. There's, there's so much in this book to, that are just, is fantastic. Um, but definitely uh, leave us something to think about, something, some, a takeaway, if you will, uh, from the book, from, you know, your research. Um, I would say... Um... I would say let's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's what I um, started talking about really to do to, to a nice sort of circle back to that. I would say that we, it's, we should be interested in this question of um, transnationalism and internationalism and uh, how is it that people from around the world would go and sign up to, um, to efforts beyond their nations? How is it that Afghan Shia youth volunteer. Think about it for a second, right? You're from an Afghan village. You volunteer. Um, you get paid, of course, for it, but I mean, you, you get recruited to go fight under an Iranian in a war in Syria. Because now we have this in many different forms. Um, the Syrian civil war, the Libyan civil war, is, uh, they're all full of, um, and of course, ISIS in Iraq and in other parts in the, in the way that in the limited way that it, that it remains, these are all not full of uh, national citizens of, of, of different countries um, that are, um, you know, that are either mercenaries or ideological recruits. So I would say that this is something to think about. Um, how is it that these forces are built? Um, and how is it that, you know, one could build 
Um, after all, in the 20th century, it, this was the preserve of the left. It was the left that organized anti-fascist strongmen in the world to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War. It was the left that organized the Communist International and built up communist parties in the world, you know, from you know, all over the world, from the United States to, to Africa, to Iran, to China, everywhere. Communists under the same flag um, fought for what they thought was a, a common future for humanity. So I would say that it's interesting that in this age of globalization, and you know, all the talk of globalization, um, why is it that it, it is sometimes harder for progressives, apparently, to build uh, transnational links um, where um, people on the other side of this political divide uh, have done it so well? Um, so I, I would think this is, um, this is something in the Middle East uh, we can think of. And I'll end, and I'll end with this. Uh, it is dual answer basically that um, I think in the Middle East we should have more of the uh, transnational links on the, on, the, on the progressive left and for those fighting for democracy. Um, we should, our answer to the uh, shadow commanders should be, you know, um, alliances under light, <laughs> if you will, and, and you know, transparent alliances. Um, but also that as part of this, uh, we have come to see that all these fantasies about the states in the Middle East being artificial and brittle and unreal, and they need, we need to go beyond them. Um, you know, I think we need to end these fantasies. And I'll point out to the movements of people in Iraq and Lebanon in 2019, two places that were victims to Soleimani's machinations more than anywhere else. Both of the movements continue um, in Iraq and in Lebanon against Iranian sort of imperial influence. And their approach is very much, we want a Lebanon, we want an Iraq that is sovereign um, and that works well, and that we want a state that, that is good, basically, um, that provides basic services. So I would say that we need internationalism, we need alliances across the borders, um, and we need to sort of study them, but also we need to um, take the framework of the national state uh, seriously and put it as the base of, uh, of our analysis and of our political organization and um, end with the sort of um, fantasies of, you know, territorial fantasies of um, um, that, that pretends like these states are you know, artificial or, or don't matter. Um, yeah, so I think that's the dual, that's the dual um, message with each sort of I am that, you know, we need, um, you know, good, good national states and national communities and taking it seriously and transnational and international links um, um, that, 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 that helps you uh, pursue the goals that you want. Awesome, awesome. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. That was thank Arash. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was Arash Azizi, the, the author of The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. Definitely it is worth your time and is an excellent read. It's a detailed read. And um, we, have any, we didn't even cover most of the book. We only touched on a couple topics. It's definitely worth uh, reading. So again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Sina. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Of course.